Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We have an incredible guest this week. Very excited to announce that Mark Ireland is here, and we're going to be talking about his most recent book, The Persistence of the Soul, Mediums, Spirit Visitations, and Afterlife Communication. You know we love that here, so we're going to be talking to him. I'm very excited about this, but first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us so you know exactly what is going on. When someone like Mark Ireland comes on to talk about these big concepts, you get that notification instantly to wherever you get it in the future. It could be the neural link. I'm not sure, but you get that notification. And of course, tell a friend. Tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them. You know me. Bring them here. Midnightsonearth.com. Okay, so we're just about to talk to Mark, but we're going to read his bio, as we always do for all of our guests. So here we go. Mark Ireland is the author of two books, Exploring the Evidence for Postmortem Survival of Consciousness, including the groundbreaking Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. Mark is the son of Richard Ireland, a renowned psychic medium who counseled prominent figures such as Mae West, Glenn Ford, Amanda Blake, and the Eisenhower family. Mark edited and published Your Psychic Potential, a guide to psychic development in 2011, a book authored by his father in the 1970s that was never released during Richard Ireland's lifetime. Mark Ireland is also the co-founder of Helping Parents Heal, an organization with more than 24,000 members that assists bereaved parents worldwide. As of 2022, HBH had more than 25,000 members, 100 affiliate chapters worldwide, and was hosting a biannual conference with nearly 1,000 registrants. Resources for healing include open and non-dogmatic discussion of spiritual experiences and evidence for the afterlife. Mark has participated in mediumship research studies conducted by the University of Arizona and the University of Virginia, and he currently operates a medium certification program, which of course we're going to talk about. And he now lives in Camas, Washington, and he's here with us today. Hello, Mark Ireland. Hey, how are you doing? That's quite a buildup. I don't know if I can live up to it, but I'll do my best. <laughs> well, it is your life. Yes, we're talking. About it. It's exciting. It's amazing. But wow, let's just start at the beginning. Your life, your childhood, your dad is Richard Ireland, this super powerful, tested un an unbelievable amount of times and every time passed every test. And this guy is your dad. What is that like? That's got to be incredible. 
It was normal for me, you know, growing up as a kid. The the one thing is that you couldn't get away with a whole lot, you know, <laughs> if you were trying to do anything mischievous because dad was would know what was that. going on. Yeah. But, um, you know, as I got older, I, I was proud of my father and I would take friends to see him, his demonstrations and things. And a lot of them got messages from him, including prophetic ones that, you know, turned out to be accurate. Um, and so it was it was a very interesting childhood. It wasn't strange to me or unique in any way. I just thought, yeah, my dad has a special ability. He always said that I was very psychic and other family members and friends were, too. But as a kid, I'm like, well, I can't do what you can do, so I'm not psychic. But I later came to understand, you know, it's a broad term and everybody has an intuitive capacity. It's just to what degree and how developed is it? Yes. Um, and it must have been amazing as a child as well, because you had that understanding, that dimension integrated at such an early age. A lot of people grow up in a traditional kind of normal Western paradigm, and then they find these things later and they have to learn about them. This was integrated into you at such a young age. In fact, since the beginning of your birth, and it was normal. That had to be amazing to have that extra knowledge. It was. And, and you know, we'll get to it later, but later on that really helped me when I had to go through a tragedy of my own as an adult. But um, yeah, my dad really integrated a lot of Eastern and Western philosophy, his own spiritual experiences. But, um, you know, he started out at a young age getting um, ordination papers through the NSAC, which is um, basically the Spiritualist Church Association. But then within a few years, I think he even felt that was too dogmatic. And he he really wanted to develop a place where people could come and explore and form their own truth, figure out things for themselves, just presenting information, presenting the phenomena. Uh, that church was called the University of Life. He founded that in 1960, but he incorporated a lot of, you know, Jesus's teachings and things like that, but, uh, um, and other things as well, but it was non-dogmatic. Um, and I guess that's where my roots kind of came in and observing that. And then as an adult, you know, reading more and learning more on your own and figuring out your own truth. And really, I didn't land too far from where my dad was. Yes, as you detail in your book, which is actually really amazing. Of course, we're going to be talking about it. There is a video on YouTube that has your father in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, the Steve Allen show. He's doing readings for people. And it's very clear that the hits, everything's happening at such a high percentage of accuracy. It's like 99.9% accuracy. And when he was doing the reading, he seemed to go into this vocal rhythm. Like it was like mm -hmm. almost like a singing or not necessarily the cadence of a preacher, you could say, but there was something there, like it was musical. Why do you think the readings were like that? Why did he take on that tone? Because he got into an altered state. Um, and in fact, I would be with him before he would do a demonstration like that. And he would sit there quietly for, he only needed like 30 seconds to a minute of shutting his eyes and just kind of getting into that space. Then he was ready to go. So, um, and if people want to see that demonstration, actually, there's links to all these different sites on my site. So later on, we can give them my site. And then when they get there, they'll find a direct link to those videos. Oh, they're absolutely astounding. And I'm kind of embarrassed. I did not know about your father's life prior to reading your book and, and doing the deep dive into your world. But it's incredible. 
I mean, I've never seen somebody that accurate recorded over and over with so much history and so much testimony. Yeah, I think the closest thing that I've seen in my lifetime to him now is probably Gordon Smith, who's in the UK and Scotland. Uh, he's exceptional. When I sh shared the video with him, he said that my dad reminded him of Arthur Best, who was his mentor and apparently someone who's just in the zone. Uh, James Von Prague was pretty shocked, too. And he, he you know, uh, hadn't seen anything like that. So, I mean, he, there's always going to be skeptics out there. Um, and he had to deal with them his whole life. And I do to some degree. I mean, even in the book, you can see I have a chapter on what yes. true skepticism is versus pseudo-skeptic or, or debunker-type skepticism. And I don't spend a whole lot of time on them anymore. It's just not worth it to me. But I've, I've got so many testimonials. And, you know, whether they're considered anecdotal or not, I don't really care. I know what the truth is. I have uh, testimonials from folks who ran their own tests on my dad and, and things that were just validating that he could not see. And when you see how his blindfolds and the tape are put on, <laughs> when he answers his message, it's ridiculous. I mean, he did that for effect. And people don't know this, but he couldn't, his eyes were horrible. He couldn't even pass a driver's license eye exam. So uh, I encourage people later on to check it out because you'll be pretty uh, impressed. Yes, you did mention that in your book. So he was like pretty much blind and still covering his entire eyes. And in fact, covering his nostrils because one woman accused him as he details in the video of being able to somehow have a birth defect and see through his nostrils from his eye cavity. Of course, physiologically and biologically impossible, but he did it anyway. So he covered any possible method of potentially seeing, even though his vision was very, very degraded. Right. The other thing I always point out to people, if they think like you put a layer of 10 uh, strips of Johnson Johnson medical tape, which is completely opaque and very sticky down to the bridge of his nose and all. So he put all that over then three opaque black blindfolds, which Steve Allen even said you couldn't see through. And then just in case people think that he could somehow peek down below those, he put strips of tape covering that down. Right. So there's no way he could look down. So there's really, I mean, to me, it's just for effect at that point. But nonetheless, and he, he shares so much information that's not even written on a paper um, that, that's mind boggling. And I've had accounts from just dozens of people from around the world since then coming back to me with stories about my dad uh, that, you know, really even are beyond what you see in that that show demonstration. And what you see there is just an, a studio audience. And, a, you know, there's only so many people he could read for. But normally, if I went to a public demonstration like that, there might be, say, 100 people in attendance. He probably hit 50 to 60 of them with that kind of specific message. So and it's pretty it was wild, but it became just commonplace to me. But then that really strengthened your belief in something bigger than yourself, not just a field or a dimension where information is stored, but actually a higher consciousness, God. Yeah. So my dad always believed in God and he, he, um, he always talked to me about that. And I remember he, he would say, who loves you? And I say, you do. And he goes, who loves you more? I'd say, God loves me more. Uh, but he, you know, during these demonstrations, but more so in his church, he would do the the spirit communication part of it. So he had a psychic element, but he also had this spirit communication element. And sometimes, you know, if he's in a secular venue, he's mainly doing the psychic thing. And, and back in that day, it's kind of unfortunate in a way he had to present it as entertainment just because that's all the public could digest at the time. But 
in public settings, secular venues, it would pop through now and then. So as a just growing up, seeing that both in the church, but now and then in public venues, when he'd give a message with great specificity, names, first, last names, and oh, yeah. who it is that's coming through and, and their relationship to the person and maybe whatever they like to do or whatever, you know, I knew then I'm like, wow, there really is more, you know, we're more than just this body and this brain. You know, we, we do go on in some way, even if I don't understand how it works, um, it's there. So that gave me a lot of confidence at a young age beyond blind faith. It was more yes. of a knowing, you know? Yes. You cross that threshold of believing into actually truly knowing that's it's so powerful so did he try to train you at a young age did he say okay you're 13 now you're you're intelligent enough to kind of grasp these concepts let's do a training or did he want you to do it organically on your own he wanted me like everyone else he met to do things organically on our own so i was a different person than my dad and while i did have some psychic things happen from time to time um, first off, I never thought I could be him because it was just like, that's too high of a bar. <laughs> um, I, I also saw the, the crap he had to deal with from people that were on that, you know, pseudo skeptic vein. And I'm like, do I really want that kind of grief in my life? Um, and my dad was more of a live for the day kind of guy. And, um, I was more a little practical, pragmatic, safe. And so I went more down the conventional path as an adult. I would still take friends to see him. In fact, my wife's second date when we were before we were anything, I took her to a demonstration. It's not in that book, but it's in my prior book. So I'll tell you this story real quick because it's pretty sure. funny. Yeah, please. So um, I'm 19 years old. I go pick up my wife, Susie, who was then, it was our second date ever. And we obviously we just started dating, so we didn't know where this was going at all. So I, and I didn't plan well, I'm running late as usual. And I'm like, do you want to go see my dad's psychic demonstration? She's like, oh, sure. That sounds like fun. So we go there and by then I'm late. My dad's already um, presenting. He's already blindfolded and giving messages to people. And I said, hey, Susie, you know, write a question and then we'll have it sent up front and hopefully you get an answer. So she wrote down, will my mother ever get married? Because at the time, her mom was dating a guy and had been for some time. She was divorced from her, her dad, uh, Susie's dad. But she was dating another man for a long period of time and kind of noncommittal. So she, this, her question gets sent up to my dad, and he picks it up and says, Susie, sap, soup, sap. And she says, it's Susie Sipe. And he, he says, well, I think you've asked me a question about your mother and if your mother's going to get married. Well, I don't know about your mother, my dear, but you've made your choice of men and he's with you tonight. And then ah. I piped up and said, uh, Dad, uh, Susie's my date. He says, oh, my gosh, I guess I just married off my own son. <laughs> That's incredible. He knew oh, that's just so mind blowing. Now, what do you think? Let's back this up a little bit. What do you think about your dad's? spirit essence not just who he was in that lifetime what do you think about the type of soul he was or light big do you feel like he had a bigger purpose and he was this kind of i don't know where he would lie but definitely somewhere yeah i think he he was adv more advanced in many ways he wasn't a perfect person but i don't know anyone who is <laughs> yeah. but he had he was filled with love and he he really tried to help people and he embraced people from all walks. In fact, to a point where he would anger the family at times because 
he'd invite people to stay at our home, people that were down on their luck or whatever, kind of, he tried to actually live Jesus's teachings, which no one does today. Um, I mean, literally live them in, in a way of um, executing some of the things that are, that were asked of people. Uh, today, Christianity's focused more on just, well, I'm saved, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do and, you know, uh, leave it to others to take care of themselves. But he literally tried to do those things and live that way. So um, it was just, it was very, he's a very unique individual. And I'm sure, you know, I, I've come to kind of respect and agree with the concept of reincarnation. So I think he'd probably been through many, many lifetimes and he was here to serve. But now at this stage of my life, I almost feel like maybe if there is kind of a pre-soul planning thing going on, maybe we had some sort of agreement. He couldn't finish it. Now I'm taking it forward. And the fact that I was in the business world and can speak to people in a rational kind of calm, uh, mainstream way, it's beneficial um, because you know, a lot of the folks that are more interested in these phenomena and open to them are on one end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm kind of bridging that gap to folks who may be, you know, open-minded, but not real, not exposed to it before, or maybe had trouble with it, but they believe me. They find me trustworthy and believable. You know what I'm saying? So maybe Absolutely. I'm helping him, helping him complete that mission. Yes. It's a different type of middle path. You're the bridge between dimensions, these true ethereal astral dimensions. And then the dimension that is created by humans, that's kind of on top of the true reality that's kind of helping us survive. So you're bridging that gap, bringing that information in for those people. There's a lot of us doing that. And it's a really powerful thing. And it's very, very necessary at this time. I think so. Yeah, it is. Um, if we're going to get on the same page and stop killing each other and, and being off track with all this other craziness. Um, it would be nice to be um, part of a constructive future uh, for all of us. Oh, of course. And I think it's going to happen. I mean, of course it is. There's really only one destiny and that is love. And that is us together in love with each other, the humans, the galactic family, so much going on. But tell me, when did you start to notice your own gifts? So obviously your father, very powerful guy, he felt like you were psychic, as you were saying, when did you start to notice that yourself? Well, I think there's one account in the book uh, of a reincarnation story that I told my dad at age three, where um, we were in a car driving and he was afraid I was going to fall out if I didn't sit closer to the middle because that was before seat belts were required. And then I went into this statement about, well, if I fell out, then I'd be broken up into a lot of little pieces and the angels would be there for me, but then they'd make me a new body and make me come back down again. And then he started asking me this series of questions and I answered them rapid fire. I have no recollection of this today, but that kind of follows suit with the research that's been done by Dr. Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia pertaining to reincarnation studies. That's usually young kids that have these memories. Later on, I'll give you a couple examples. One, I put in my first book, Soul Shift. I was with Susie before we were married at one of my dad's demonstrations. He had just concluded uh, doing it. Uh, he was going to do two demonstrations that night. And after the first one, because it, it could be draining for him, he says, Mark, I'm so tired. Uh, why don't you do the next one for me? And so jokingly, facetiously, I, I said, okay, I stuck out my hands. I said, give me the power. So he laid his hands on mine and I was just kind of teasing, but then he goes, okay, here's your first test. What's that man's name right there? And he picked a stranger out in the adjacent booth and it just popped into my mind right then. I said, Alan. And he says, okay, let's find out. 
So someone else in our booth tapped the guy on the shoulder and said, uh, excuse me, what's your name? He said, what? He goes, just tell us your name. He says, Alan. So that was one of those, you know, and, and I think the good part of that was I could, it, it gave me a sense for what that was like, or how to identify a psychic or intuitive feeling as opposed to just something else, some other kind of a feeling. More striking when I was, I think, 18 or 19, I was dating this girl and I had a dream one night. So this is in a different state. This is not in the waking state. It's in a dream state. And in the dream, I dreamt that she was seeing another guy. And I was kind of jealous about it. And the odd thing was I knew what he looked like, and I knew his first and last name. So the next day I said, I had this strange dream. And she says, well, tell me about it. I said, no, nah, it was just a dream. She goes, no, tell me. And I said, well, I dreamt you were seeing this other guy. And he looked about this tall. He had this hair color, and his name was Bob Dooley. And she goes, oh, my gosh. I dated a guy named Bob Dooley when I lived in Kansas, and he looks exactly that way. So those were a couple of the early episodes. And I know in the book, I share some more recent ones too, but I don't want to belabor this either. Well, yes, and we do want people to check out the book, of course. You do say in your book that good mediumship provides evidence that a spiritual dimension exists and that our consciousness survives physical death. Now, is that something that you feel like is fundamental in mediumship? Like you, that it's not just about giving you information about what happened with your loved one or deceased person that you're trying to contact. It's actually changing your frequency to help you understand that that dimension exists. The way I look at it is I'm a fan of evidential mediumship. So if I get a medium who's able to share specific information um, about my deceased loved one, and I feel like I'm getting statements and things that that come from them, um, then that gives me confidence that anything else they might say pertaining to how uh, the next realm is or what it's like or our purpose here. So that's how I view it. I mean, there are some people who say they're a medium or a psychic and they can give you a bunch of generic gobbledygook. Um, and, and some of them, you know, trans mediums that have good information, but I'm just biased that way where I prefer an evidential medium that can give me a, evidence that they're getting real information. And then I, I'm more accepting of the rest of what they share. Yes, of course, because those valid hits, when they have that much information, that's where the validity comes in because anybody can be vague. I mean, you see these kind of charlatans that do that. And I love how you have a chapter in your book where you talk about how to identify charlatans and how to actually identify the real mediums that are out there. I think it's really valuable. But where do you think this information is coming from? Like some, some psychics, some mediums talk about the Akashic records. Where do you think this information is that you're, you're hitting not just the communications with deceased entities, but the actual like location information, material information, things like that. Um, I think my dad would have said that it comes from a variety of sources. Um, and, and some of the mediums I know today will say the same thing, like, okay, part of it's psychic. Part of it might be like a Kashuk record or the universal database, um, the memory of the universe and memory, God's memory, whatever you want to call it. But then there's others that are direct communication from a, a soul that used to live on the earth. Um, so, you know, which one is it and how do you identify which they are? I guess that's a subjective matter. I, I'd say there's a couple ways uh, to isolate that or at least attempt to. One is, um, 
you know, the mediums that I've spoken with will describe like a psychic information piece as different in their feeling and perception than, than a mediumship one. Um, Dr. Julie Beichel of Winbridge Research Institute, she had one of her mediums that she's gone through testing with said um, it's um, I think she's I, ho I hope I don't blow this, but I think she said the medium described uh, a psychic information as reading a book. But um, spirit contact is like watching a play. Um, I also think there's a sense of a presence sometimes when you're communicating with someone who has passed that may not be present when it's just psychic information or pulling from the Akashic records. So it's, it's hard to you can't prove that, you know, but that, that's the best thing I have. The, the other thing is, and I mentioned this in the book, too, I think there's there's something called drop in information. And that's that's where. So this would kind of eliminate te telepathy with the sitter as an explanation. And that would be a case where, say, say I'm getting a reading and a medium starts giving me information that doesn't jive with me. But immediately I recognize, I think that's for my friend so-and-so. Um, and I mentioned that in the beginning, the case with Deborah Martin, where I had a friend named Linda who lived in Sacramento. And uh, she was trying to reach out to me because her brother had just been killed in a motorcycle accident. So coincidentally or synchronistically, I'm uh, I have an appointment later that day with Deborah Martin, a really high quality medium. Um, but the topic we we're going to cover was something else entirely. It was the forward to my dad's book. Um, so I get to her house and I said, it's really odd that I am here at a medium's home today because a friend of mine just lost her brother today. And Deborah said to me, well, it's no accident you're, that you're here uh, because I'm supposed to talk to her. So later we sat down before I left and um, she said, what's the deceased brother's name? And I said, I don't know. She said, what's your friend's name? And I said, it's Linda. And without any other information or knowledge, she just says, well, it, it was a motorcycle accident. I feel he died instantly. He didn't suffer. Then she went on to give me other pieces of information. Now, I knew that it was a brother. I knew he had died in the motorcycle wreck, but I didn't know any the val uh, whether the rest of the information was valid or not. She stated she saw a red ribbon or banner that she thought went over his coffin. She mentioned the little kids. She mentioned bath time or a bathtub. Um, and so I'm like, I don't know if the, and several other things. But then I later debriefed with Linda on my drive back home. And she says, oh, yeah, well, there was a red ribbon that his biker friends put over his coffin, you know, as a, as a memorial for him. And uh, he had children that we literally called the little kids. And she said that we watched them during a period of his life where he was battling drug problems. Um, and the bathtub thing, they love bath time and they they would have water wars. So that was like a really big deal to them. And there were other things like that that were covered. But what I'm trying to get to here is that information. Um, I think it's not something that could have been pulled from me about via telepathy because I didn't know it. Right. So to me, that's more evidence that. And, and she said he says that he left his body immediately. He felt no suffering. So it, to me, that was, you know, a sort of evidence that, OK, that's a direct connection with this discarnate spirit. And, you know, even beyond that or the um, some of the experiments that were conducted back by the SPR way back when Society of Psychical Research, you know, pertaining uh, to experiments where mediums from around the world got multiple messages 
that didn't make any sense on their own, but then they were brought together and they kind of, they formed a mosaic and then they were able to decipher it. So it, it implied that an intelligence was behind that, that, and that person had worked with the SBR was a founding member, I believe. Um, so wow. anyhow, <laughs> that's incredible. Those are some, yeah. We're trying to, you know, I'm giving you a lot here, but those are some of the things I look to, to say, okay, this is, why I think, or, you know, my feeling is that these are f- directly from somebody who's passed. Well, it's almost like a, a quantum experience. We're still kind of wrapping our heads around how information and energy and time and space move as humans. I feel like as we expand our intelligence, consciousness, awareness into these quantum realms, it's going to also lead into these other dimensions where our family is, the spiritual information. Yeah, you know, um, I think we don't we, we know about this much about the universe, <laughs> yeah. and I'm okay with a mystery personally. I yes. mean, I think quantum mechanics gives us some clues. You know, I always point to the observer effect, and which has been validated in the lab multiple times that mind effects matter. Right. So, if mind effects matter to me, that means okay, consciousness is probably primary because how would it affect matter if matter wasn't a subset or a creation, if you will, uh, that originated via consciousness. Absolutely. Um, and then the, the um, entanglement is another one, you know, where the, I don't want to misstate this, but my understanding is you could take two particles that have ever been connected in a special way, separate them as far apart as opposite ends of the universe and yet whatever happens in one is instantaneously reflected in the other. Well, how could that be if, you know, the speed of light's 186,000 miles per second, and even at that rapid speed, the universe, the physical universe end-to-end would take about 20 billion years to cross. So that tells me there's some underlying um, place or emanating point that is free of time, free of time and space, or uh, it does doesn't have the constraints we have in this physical 3D world that we live in, or 4D, I guess, including time. Really, time, if you think about it, exists because of the dimension of space. You know, if if it wasn't for distance, you know, and we we know that it takes uh, eight minutes for sunlight to get here to the Earth from the sun. Well, if if there was no distance, there would be no time because you wouldn't. At least that's my understanding. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that is absolutely correct. And like you said, the speed of light is capped. The speed of thought is not capped. The speed of thought, you can think about something and that quantum entanglement, you're there. The energy is there. The waveform, your psychic waveform has hit the waveform that that matter, place, whatever it is, is made out of. It's instantaneous. It's mind blowing. But like you said, we just know a little bit but we're growing as humans we're adapting this new information there's been a lot of forward progression especially over the last i'd say 20 to 30 years but there's a fear there's a fear an intrinsic fear in humans an apprehension to this type of phenomenon why is that because i noticed in your father's video that we talked about earlier the youtube video the host steve allen was given a a specific form of currency and put in his pocket by one of his crew members while blindfolded completely like we were talking about tapes and everything your father without being prompted reached his hand into the host's pocket 
pulled out the bill, told him exactly the denomination, the fact it was from another country. They tried to trick him. And the host's reaction was, wow, that's scary. And I took note of that because his eyes got real wide because that was, whoa, that was really intense, right? So like that was his initial reaction. Wow, that's scary. Why is it scary? Why are we afraid? I'm not, but as <laughs> humans, right. a lot of people, collectively as humans, because we, we all have a worldview and that worldview is our security blanket. That's how, where we think we understand how things, the order of things, how things work. And people may or may not know this, but Steve Allen was actually like a skeptic. He was, uh, I mean, like of the James Randi variety. I think he was friends with James Randi oh, really? and he, he, he ran in those circles uh, probably, uh, you know, Michael Shermer circles and things like that. And he couldn't solve my dad. So I feel like my dad was the one thing that Steve Allen saw maybe that really made him think, okay, maybe there is more than, than physical reality. And maybe, um, the guys I hang with don't have all the answers, <laughs> but it comes down to worldview. Yeah. I think there's, there's two worldviews that really are hung up. One is, you know, materialism, physicalism, and and that runs through the academic circles. I'm hoping that will change. And there are people that are brave enough to try and rattle the cage of the academics. But today, if you send a kid to university, they're probably going to be taught that, you know, uh, secular humanism and, and atheism is the way to go. And that's reality. And all this other stuff is is hooey. So that's one that's one part of it. The other is fundamentalist religion that is afraid of it because, they think that, you know, well, all these truths of miracle stories and all this was reserved for one period of time. And if it if it happens today, it's demonic. But that's really a man-made tradition out of the church for control. It's not really in there if you know your scripture and you, and you read that and you, you understand not just what's in the scripture, but who wrote the books when they were written and, and some, you know, have a knowledge of the background of the books before you jump to those conclusions. But there's a lot of folks that are afraid. They've been through tra trauma in their life, so they cling to their religion as a safe space, you know? So I think those are the predominant reasons. Yes, and you say in your book that the human desire for certainty is so strong that humans will take any action necessary to protect their worldview. Like anything, like it's certainty. If you go back in history, and you look at the first set of codified laws, the Code of Hammurabi, you'll notice that the laws are chaotic and insane, but they provide about two degrees of structure and security above total chaos. And people, if you give them just that, generally, will fall in line with whatever you tell them if you can help them in some way escape total chaos. There's this fear of the unknown. There's this fear of chaos. Yeah. And, and maybe that goes back to our roots of trying to survive in prehistoric times or something, you know, and maybe <laughs> back then. But at the same time, maybe the intuitive faculty was much stronger much than those stronger. people because you needed it to survive. Absolutely. Today, you know, we're just overwhelmed with media, you know, and everybody's got a smartphone and kids don't talk to each other anymore. They just look at the smartphone and then they get hung up on how many likes they have and stuff like that. So it's... Uh, it's it's interesting. There's some progress along with some regress at the same time.
Oh, absolutely. And the scripture that you were talking about, you mentioned in your book, these gifts of the spirit, and you have religious people, fundamentalists really, that see gifts like this as, like you said, demonic or evil in some way. But I looked up the actual verse, the chapter that you talked about in the book, it's first Corinthians chapter 12. If you read that, it talks about all of the different gifts that a person that is involved in spiritual training involved in aligning themselves with love and light can achieve. And it's all right there in a Christian new Testament context. Very true. And my dad would often point to that. Um, and the fact that uh, a lot of these miracle stories in the new Testament um, involved Jesus, you know, for example, talking to uh, a woman at, at a well, but and then through clairvoyance, it appears, uh, describes to her the fact that she's been married multiple times and the man she's with now is not her husband. And she says, sir, I see you must be a prophet. Um, and, and then he is recorded as talking to dead people, Moses and Elijah, you know, in three or four different books of the New Testament. Right. Um, so that's mediumship. And then, but people will still say, well, but that was Jesus, you know, that's for him, reserved for him. But yet in passages, in John, for example, uh, it, it has Jesus saying, all the works I do, you will do in greater works than these, if you believe. Absolutely. Believe if you align, I my personal opinion is if you align with the Christ consciousness, if you truly integrate that, even like your dad, if you try to live it, just really be it then you can develop yourself in such a way to get access to what is naturally inherent in the human body. Yeah. And I think you have to go about it with the right intention too. each of us have different abilities or gifts. Some are going to have healing as an, as an ability. Others may have clairvoyance. Others may have spirit communication. Um, so, and don't do it for purposes of ego, do it for service. That's yes. the most important thing. Absolutely. Your father felt like everyone was psychic, like has that ability. Do you agree with that, that we can all start from zero, I guess, psychically and train ourselves to be really uh, intuitive and, and strong in that way? He does. He did. I mean, that's why he uh, had that book, uh, Your Psychic Potential, A Guide to Psychic Development, which actually was born from workshops he was doing in the late 60s and early 70s to train people who were interested on how to develop these abilities. And then he had a, a basically a ghostwriter sitting at a table, capturing all the information my dad taught, putting it into a written text form. But here's what I would say about it. I think some people are intrinsically more gifted than others at these things. So it's just like a natural talent. It's like some, you know, I play guitar. I'm decent. I'm pretty good, but there are people a lot better than me. You know, it's okay. Um, same with these types of uh, faculties. Some people will have an inordinate amount of natural ability. And if they work to develop it, they'll just be top of the heap. Others may have very little and they really want it bad. So they work at it real hard and they improve a little bit, but they're never going to be the superstar type. You know, right. I think you have to look at your own life path and figure out, well, what what is it that, you know, what's your path and purpose? What feels right to you? And then go down that path and um, apply those gifts to help the world and, and be of service and also maximize your per reason for being here. But that's part of the discovery process of life is figuring out what is it that I should be doing? What feels right? And when I think when you're on that path, things kind of fall into place. Oh, absolutely. And I have to ask you the book that you just referenced your father's book, 
it was written in 1970, but you published it far later. Why is that? Why did it not get published at the time? Oh, you'll love this story. So, uh, so it was actually 1973. Okay. So let me talk about where I first discovered it. I didn't even know this book existed until, um, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but my son passed unexpectedly in January 2004, and that drew me back into my dad's field, um, both for direct connection and for um, to kind of learn firsthand, you know, about the research part of it, meet mediums, have some readings, uh, work on my own development to have direct experiences with my son. So during the course of this, it was probably, I would say, June or July of 2004, there was a man my dad knew who handed me this box and the box was filled with typed eight and a half by 11 pages. And the cover page says your psychic potential, a guide to psychic development, Richard Ireland, 1973. I'm like, what is this? He goes, well, it's a book your dad wrote. Um, and I'm like, well, where'd you get it? He said, well, he gave it to me before he passed because you were out of state at the time. And so I said, well, why are you giving this to me now? And he says, well, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. I'm like, okay. Well, two weeks later, I had my first reading with a medium uh, since my son had passed. And it was with Alison Dubois, who later became a big name because of the network show Medium. But at this point, she wasn't, she was very popular just from word of mouth because she was very gifted, but she wasn't that well known yet where I couldn't get an appointment. So I get this appointment. It's two weeks after I get this book handed to me. One of the very first things she says to me is, Well, I have your father here and he's showing me a book. But I feel it's his book, and he's handing it to you to take forward. Does that make sense? And, yeah, it made perfect sense. Oh. So that was pretty wild. So I'm like, I could, you know, to me, my dad's communicating with her, you know, with that information. <laughs> Why, you know, and it was later, actually, when I wrote the forward for the book, because I, I did write the forward for Your Psychic Potential. And back to the story about Deborah Martin, the woman who gave the messages to Linda, the reason I was going out there to see her that day was she felt like my dad wanted some information conveyed to me about the importance and sacred nature of that book. And so basically what I had composed was um, a forward that said, you know, this is a sacred endeavor. Don't do it as a novelty. Don't do it for ego. Do it because you truly are interested in it as a tool for service. And, um, and Debbie kind of conveyed the same thing in terms of what I'd already written and then later, going through some old papers that my dad had left behind that I found, I found uh, one called To the Would-Be Medium. And it almost verbatim said exactly what I had written in the forward. So that was pretty creepy. And, and now, ultimately, though, um, what Debbie said was, and what I wrote, I wrote before she told me that she says, your dad says it wasn't time. It wasn't time in a world sense. The world wasn't ready for it at that time. Oh, so in publishing it and having read it, are there really unique concepts in that book that you feel like haven't been expressed by other mediums trying to teach people? I think um, what's different about it is that it's, it's a little more scholarly in terms of the support data and information there. Cause my dad was really, I think because he wanted to be viewed as having high integrity and understanding the field of parapsychology and psychical research. So he would have allusions to that in the book um, and speak to those things. I think it was very thorough. I think there's some commonalities with other training materials, you know, like meditation being a key practice 
but I think he gave you a very practical approach to, to meditation, not like you need to sit in an ashram for two hours at a time, but like his practice was really just two times a day, 15 minutes a crack. And then he offered a psychic diet that he felt like was for him was effective. So there were various things. And then even myself, like he talks about kind of a range of the abilities from the intuitive level, uh, actually, so the emotional level, the intuitive, the psychic, and the medium sphere communication level, and the differences in those. So it was like a gradation where you'd start here and, and progress up to where you could actually achieve that end of things. I think part of it, too, and then you had tests in there where you could test yourself to see where you were at in the process. Um, and I think I also had to learn, like, well, what does psychic information feel like? Or what does a spirit communication feel like versus just, like, everyday thoughts? And it's a fine line. It's a very, can be a very subtle thing um, that, you know, is surprising how valuable that piece of information could be that you are just going to throw away because it's like, eh, that's just my imagination. Well, there's a fine line between imagination and getting valid information. I think it's maybe the bridge that we have uh, between, you know, this waking reality state and maybe the spiritual realm and, and how information can be tossed back and forth. Well, how would you describe just in your own experience, the differentiation? Like, how, how, is it a frequency thing? Is it a deeper feeling? Just if you can, in your own words, how would you describe the differences between those things? Well, now, I'm not a practicing psychic or medium like my dad, but I do have some ability and it comes sporadically typically. Now, if I chose to develop it and really work on it, I think I could probably bring it out more to a greater degree. But let me just give you a couple examples of experiences I've had to convey it better than just stating it. So um, one in the book I actually shared is that I was for three for a three year stint, I was invited to speak at a spiritualist church in san francisco called the golden gate spiritualist church it was founded by a woman named florence becker who founded it in 20, 1924 she passed away in 1970 but the church had gone on after that so each of these three years i brought a medium friend of mine tina powers there to accompany me now this is the type of church that's all into this kind of thing you know they're they're embracing the gifts of the spirit you know they want to hear this stuff so where this church would normally be half full, we're, they're packed, you know, they're looking forward to this. Um, but for, you know, months before going, Tina kept bugging me and saying, hey, Mark, I think you're going to get a message to share. Will you share it with the congregation? I'm like, yeah, sure, I will if I get something. And she repeatedly asked me this, building up to the day, even walking into the door of the church that day. She's like, Mark, do you promise to share the message, any message you might get? And I said, Tina, yes, I promised you I would, so I will. So not really knowing if I would get anything or not, I went into their healing room. Um, people are getting laying on of hands healing. And I sit on a bench to an organ or piano. I don't remember which it was. Shut my eyes and went into kind of a quiet meditative state, just kind of really preparing for my talk. Um, and I actually was able to like get my mind blank, which is very rare for me. But while it was blank, a name popped in. It was Max. And then right after that, I got another name, Maxine. And I thought, oh, maybe it's Maxine and not Max. But that's all I got. Now, I didn't see that name. I didn't hear that name. It came to me like an idea would, like an idea pop popping in or maybe a memory popping in. That's the best way I can describe it. So anyhow, I went and gave my talk. And at the end, I said, well, Tina made me promise to share anything I might get. 
do the names Max or Maxine mean anything to anyone here? And the church pastor's jaw dropped, and he says, uh, well, Max and Maxine were children that were born to the church founder, Florence Becker. They were delivered stillborn, and they grew up in spirit. And then he said, I think we know who is here right now. Um, and then after that, he says, I want to show you something. He took me upstairs and showed me a painting that I think was done by Florence Becker. It was a landscape painting with a wind, long winding road. He says, see the little two figures at the end of the road? That's Max and Maxine. So um, I guess what I'd say is for such a, a subtle feeling or impression was so powerful. I mean, to get not just one name. Max isn't a common name, nor is Maxine, but to get them both, uh, pretty crazy. So that's how... You know, in my experience, that's how I've gotten it. Now, other other people get information different ways. Some of them see more visually. I can get mental impressions, too. But some of them actually see outside of themselves, like Linda Williamson, who I had interviewed for the book, asked about her process. Her, she's one of the few that I've talked to who actually sees, you know, I see people outside of myself through my eyes. Wow. Um, so it, it it varies by by person. But now, in terms of hearing... She says she rarely hears in an auditory way. It's more of an internal hearing or internal process. Of, and maybe it's more like what I just described, where it just kind of pops in. And you, it's like a knowing, if that helps. Yes, it's like feeling the words, you could say. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not, like you said, auditory, but it is different for each person, different by degree and experience. But you stated in your book that you knew you weren't like your father, but then your father's saying you have these gifts, and you're also saying now that you maybe could unlock those if you trained yourself. Why haven't you taken that path? Why haven't you tried to really just grind on developing yourself and become that? First, you have. I think you have to have the desire and commitment. Um, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I'd have, you know, I have a day job still, um, and I'm doing all these other things kind of, kind of in a, a journalistic way. You know, my books, my uh, talks, um, and, you know, the organization I'm in, I think the minute that I say, okay, now I'm a medium, you know, all that kind of goes away. But I think the the main reason is because if, you know, I want to serve people in grief and they're very vulnerable. So it's a lot of responsibility and you have to be the very best to do that. In my opinion, I I wouldn't want to be anything less than the very best because while a, a reading from a medium can provide a lot of healing to a grieving person, it can it can also cause damage if it's a bad reading, you know? Yeah, if so, there's this distortion or if you're, like you said, not highly, highly trained and effective, it could hurt the person energetically. It could hurt their auric field. And we're here to heal and be teachers and, and spread love and light. We're not here to hurt anybody. I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. So those are probably the main reasons. And then just... Do I want to put up the, with the crap that my father did? I mean, recently, even um, we've the organization we mentioned earlier, Helping Parents Heal, that I co-founded in 2011. It's now up to actually 175 affiliate chapters nationally, wow. worldwide. I'm sorry, worldwide, and 26,000 members. There's a skeptic organization that is trying to infiltrate. <laughs> um, they're tied to the well. Anyhow, there's a. There's a publication that skeptics read. No, I'm serious. I believe you. They they think they're trying to protect us. You know, we're vulnerable, stupid parents. 
And so they're trying to weed out these mediums because they think they're all fakes because, again, they have this materialistic worldview where all that stuff's impossible. And when you're dead, you're dead, you know, that kind of mentality. So they're, um, they've apparently located our list of providers who have been gone through this certification process that I could talk about later and want to like expose them or whatever. Ugh. Well, you know, and, and the, so they, they, they can't even see the value of this, uh, where, you know, I mentioned, uh, Julie Beichel and Winbridge research Institute earlier. She actually did a, a study on the impact of a quality mediumship reading for the bereaved. And the results were pretty much overwhelming that, you know, when combined with their professional therapy, the, the benefits far outweigh therapy alone. Um, so, there's a value in this. The problem is you got people who are trying to protect that old paradigm and they just won't get out of the way. In fact, they want to disrupt it. But I think for the most part, they have their own little click and their own little club and they like to pat themselves on the back <laughs> and they, they have their publication. And no one outside of that reads it. What we have is a groundswell of grassroots um, power from people who want to see these changes take place and for academia to wake up to the broader nature of, you know, we need research into consciousness and these kind of phenomena. We don't need to just try and refute it and and in, instead investigating why lizards mate in March or whatever. Yeah, this is far more important. And those skeptics, the infiltrators, again, like we talked about earlier, they're doing anything necessary to protect their worldview, that paradigm. People are afraid of paradigm shifts because of the habits that go along with paradigms. So they cling to those habits. It's hard to change habits in a way. A paradigm is just a collection of habits, like a, like a uh, algorithm. And they don't want to change their algorithm to incorporate that information. So they're actually actively trying to stop it, which is insane in, in my view. But as you talked about earlier, you have that journalistic approach, which did come through in your book. And I thought that the book was amazing because it did take a deep dive into the multicultural history of all these different topics that we're talking about and that we cover on the podcast. It's not just about your experience and the interviews and the information that you gathered. There's a really cool history and explanation of mediumship where it showed up throughout the world and other esoteric topics, which I thought were so cool because it's really a great book. If you're like, if you're like new to this, you're like, wow, I feel like I could be psychic. I have these intuitive experiences. There's been some really supernatural in a way experiences, but I don't know this. This would be a great book to start with. Well, thanks Jake. You know, when I, um, the first book was more of a, a memoir, I would say, and a, my journey after my son Brandon's unexpected passing that brought me back into the field and journaling, you know, my personal direct experiences. It gave me confidence that I made a connection with Brandon, as well as four readings that were as controlled as I could get them um, through four different mediums that were highly compelling and had a lot of, you know, similar information in them. Um but this book, uh, Persistence of the Soul, I wanted to take it up another level, kind of a different approach. I still wanted to have that, those personal stories in there, but then back it up with kind of the science that supports it. And other, I wanted it to serve as an educational guide, kind of, you know, like these are the kind of experiences I've had and seen. And here's what, you know, science says about them. Here's the research about it. Here's the history about it. Uh, so that's what I was trying to pull off. Well, you did a great job. And 
as I got to those chapters in the book, you suggested perhaps if you were well-versed in those topics that maybe move on to a later part of the book. But I read those chapters and even though I knew all of that information, it was still cool to read it all again and hear it in a different way. You get those affirmations and affirmations are so powerful in strengthening uh, your personal frequency. I was kind of appealing to two different audiences here. One being, you know, a lot of the people who already believe in this and they just want the stories or, you know, they're open to believing, but they don't want to read all the science. It just that we, that they that will lose them. But then I have the other mainly men you know, that are more left brain and they want all that, you know, so that's that's why it's like that. Oh, it's, it's a great read. It's just like an interesting read. Like it's it's very captivating and you're getting the information, the stories, your life. And let's just talk about this for a second because we've referenced this a couple of times, you had an incident where your son, your wonderful son, Brandon passed in an unexpected way. And you started to receive messages from him that, like you said, were validated by four different other mediums. Correct. Um, but even before the, the meetings with the mediums, I think the first affirmation I had was direct and I wanted it that way. That was within just a day or two. I went into a darkened room, which was actually a walk-in closet, shut the door so it was in pitch black darkness and made a mental appeal appeal in a prayerful way for some sort of contact or confirmation. And within a short time, I saw his face go by, like in my mind's eye, smiling and joyful. I just felt like a glow around him. But right after that was a cross with an oval loop at the top. And frankly, I'd seen those, but I didn't know what it was. So this required me, Mr. Analytic, to go to Google, look up what is this cross, lo and behold, find out it's the Ankh, which is the oldest cross of human history from the Egyptians, and the lower portion of the cross representing physical life and the oval loop representing eternal life. So what I got was a, a coded message, I believe, that tells me, hey, Brandon's fine, he's now in the afterlife. He had the physical life, now he's in the afterlife. Um, and so... You know, fast forwarding, there were some other things uh, in my first book, too, that are pretty amazing. And, uh, but I'll skip to the the reading. So the first one happened with Alison Dubois. But here's what's kind of ironic about the timing of that. Brandon passed in Jan on January 10th. Well, just about three weeks later in early February, I'm watching um, a news excerpt on the NBC affiliate in Phoenix. And they're showing an experiment being done. At, at the University of Arizona involving mediums under blinded conditions. So the medium in that featured ep, um, excerpt was Alison Dubois, and she was shielded from the sitters where she couldn't see them and she could not, uh, they could not respond to her. So she was asked a series of questions and then she went off that with more information. But what she gave were highly specific validations and things. And then they debriefed with the sitters afterward and showed those. And I was like really impressed because it was it was not like mundane stuff. It was specific stuff. Um, and I thought, God, I'd love to have a reading from her and I'd love to be in that lab. Little did I know the very next day I'd get a call from a man named Jerry Concert. Jerry was a friend of my father's and he said to me, hey, Mark, I know what you've been through and I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name's Allison Dubois. And here's a number you can call to get an appointment with her. So that was pretty synchronistic. <laughs> and I actually was in that lab a year later, participating in another uh, experiment with a different medium, Lori Campbell, who was exceptional. And that was actually filmed for a Discovery Channel e uh, episode 
that people can see when they go to my website, markirelandauthor.com, under the media tab. So, um, yeah, I think the first was Allison. Um, some of her key hits, and this is just going on memory because it's been quite a while, but she she was concerned about a cause of death related to drowning. Well, my son, Brandon, he, um, to go back to the day of, that this happened, he was climbing the mountains behind our home in Scottsdale, Arizona. He started feeling dizzy. He passed out. We didn't know what was going on. Um, and then after he, after we were informed that he had passed, his best buddy who had tried to revive him just said, you know, Brandon said that he, uh, you know, he was feeling uh, like numbness in his arms and he felt like his heart was beating rapidly. But that's all we knew. My uncle, who had the same abilities as my dad, was still alive, even though my dad had passed. So I touched base with him. And he said, can I do anything for you? And I said, well, if you need any kind of connection, I'd really appreciate it. And uh, it was about three days later, I was in the mortuary and we connected by cell phone. He said, Mark, um, I tried to meditate last night. I couldn't get anything. But this morning, your dad came, came to me in my morning meditation. He told me that he was there for Brandon at the time of Brandon's passing. Brandon was a little confused as to what was going on, but your dad helped him adjust. Uh, Brandon wanted you to know that you're the best parents he ever could have had. But in addition to that feel-good statement, he said, um, your dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen uh, that causes heart to fail. Two days after that, I got the autopsy results. The physician called me and said, your son's death was caused by a severe asthma attack that causes blood oxygen levels to drop, uh, resulting in cardiac arrest. So my uncle gave me the cause of death two days before the autopsy. Now we're back to the Alison Dubois reading. She's describing this as a, a feeling of drowning. Well, that autopsy physician told me that Brandon's lungs had expanded the point of nearly touching in the middle, and that only occurs in severe asthma attacks cases and drowning cases. So the feeling Allison described was exactly correct for what had taken place. She also shared, um, your son says, congratulations on your 25th wedding anniversary. Well, we just had that about six weeks earlier. Um, she, she also had, as I mentioned earlier, the thing about my dad with the book. So um, that was pretty phenomenal. And th there were some other hits as well. Um, and then I also met with uh, a Jamie Clark, who's in Phoenix. And Jamie had mentioned uh, a few things that were interesting. One that I really found compelling was he says, your son is showing me. Well, first off, Jamie described Brandon's place where he died and what the environment was like. It was on a mountain, a desert environment and all this. Um, he knew nothing about me when I went there. So uh, and even back then, I don't there was no social media or I wasn't on it. Um, so uh, he he had described a photo. He says, your son showed me a photo of he and his brother arm in arm. And it's up high on like, it looks like um, a, a peak overlooking this green mountain area and, and the ocean. It looks like it's Hawaii. Well, I, I couldn't think about that at the time. I went through a drawer of photos from old pictures and I found a photo from 2000 when we made a trip to Hawaii. And I found a picture of those two arm in arm in Hawaii with, with the way it was described. Whoa. So that's something he wouldn't have read my mind to get because I, I didn't remember it. <laughs> And then it talked about my wife being at the grocery store and she was digging for something in her purse she couldn't find. Well, um, at, at, I guess to convey that Brandon was aware that he was there, you know, with her at the time, um, she had apparently 
didn't have her credit card with her debit card, whatever it was, because she'd loaned it to our other son. And so she was like scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to pay for the groceries with? <laughs> because I'm giving the car away. Um, so uh, Linda Williamson of England, she's now retired. She was another one that gave me a reading. And hers was really profound in a broad sense, because not only did she give me a lot of things pertaining to Brandon, but she made some predictions that have since come to pass. She talked about me. Um, she says, all you have to do is be yourself and tell your truth. You don't really need to do anything, but you're going to, there's going to be a huge following developing behind you. It's going to be, you know, like worldwide. And she said, um, she then talked about um, Montague Keene, who was a researcher of, of, of mediumship in England, and he had passed away within two weeks of Brandon's date of death. And uh, he he was really interested in bringing this information forward. She talked about other researchers. And bottom line, she says, there's a group of people, um, both here on the earth and people who have passed, who are very interested in bringing this knowledge to the world. And you're part of this, basically is what she said. And she says, you're, you're going to have this, it sounds like an army of people behind you. And all I have to do is just be myself. So now I look and say, well, you know, she's, and she says, things don't always happen in the time frame we expect. Well, I kept waiting and waiting because this was back in 2004 fall that she's telling me this stuff. That's 19 years ago. I'm like, when is this ever going to happen? Well, now I look forward 19 years later, this Helping Parents Heal organization with 26,000 members and all these chapters and a conference that we had two years ago go drew 900 people and it was incredibly healing. Um, we, we brought in unbelievable speakers and presenters, but just mixing them together, the hotel employees were afraid of having a group of bereaved parents. They're afraid it was be a downer. They said we were the best group they'd ever have because wow. the energy just exploded. So um, it, that was pretty amazing, her reading for me, just because of how it detailed what was going to unfold, which has subsequently unfolded. Wow. And then the last one was the one that was taped for Discovery Channel with Lori Campbell. And Lori had um, a number of really interesting hits. You know, one, uh, she uh, was asked the cause of death. And she said, and this was in the same vein as the one that I described earlier with Alison Dubois, where she couldn't see me or hear me. And when she was asked by the researcher, what was the cause of death? She goes, my chest, my whole chest feels like it's so tight and I, it's pressure. And she says, I, I feel like I want to throw up. Well, his buddy had told me that Brandon vomited just before passing out and passing away. Um, and she said, I, I feel like there's a tree planted with a plaque. Well, his high school, because he was six months away from graduating, I had planted a tree in his honor and there was a plaque on a, he was a bass player. So one of the kids sculpted a, a, a bass out of metal and then this plaque went on there. So she got that. She also, and at the time I was, I was pulling together all the information and journaling, journaling for my first book, Soul Shift. She said, I feel like the person behind me is writing a purse, a book about the deceased person, which was true because I was doing that at the time. Um, and people can see a clip of that again on my website. Uh, it's under the media tab. So um, that that's kind of a real quick synopsis of some of those those chapters. But they get into a lot more depth. There's a lot more hits than I shared right now here. And then there's other experiences direct that were just mind blowing that happened too. Oh, I know the book does detail those things, and it's 
incredible. You had five different mediums, if I counted that correctly, five different people getting you information about your son, which is terribly sad. And you try to understand those things when they happen. You think about the life paths and the choices we make as light beings, as souls before we come into this reality. And it seems really interesting that that experience helped you grow as an individual. Now it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's devastating and it hurts, it hurts a lot when, when you lose a loved one like that. But interestingly, strangely, it seems from the outside that part of his life path was helping his father, you activate that next level of understanding. Yeah, I think so. It's again, you know, I (laughs) always think about, I don't think this way that much now, but you, you know, you'd think, well, what could I have done different or, or something like that? Like you, you'd love to never have lost him in the physical sense. Of course. He didn't get to live the rest of your life with him in your life, see him get married, see him do things, see if his bass playing got him into a professional music career or whatever, or if he'd gone on to be a physicist because he had interest in physics. But I think it was the catalyst that pushed me. And I think maybe there was a pre-soul birth planning thing, an agreement maybe, you know, that was part of this plan because I, I needed that Kickstarter. This never would have happened. I I really honestly think if he hadn't passed, I don't know that I would have done any of this. At most, I might have run a, written a biography about my dad. It's it's interesting how that all works. It's, it's, it's just, it's kind of, it's outside the third dimension, that's for sure. But it did segue into you starting the Helping Parents Heal Foundation, which was founded in 2011. And and like you said, this is an organization that's connecting people with their deceased loved ones, their children. Tell me about this. Tell me everything about this. Okay. So here's how it started. So back to 2009, I think it was December of 09 or thereabouts or early 2010. Uh, at that time, I was promoting the first book, Soul Shift. I was doing workshop events. Um, this particular one, I was doing it with a psychic, Jamie Clark. And I was basically teaching my dad's um, information from your psychic potential before the book was published. And then Jamie would um, share his personal observations and methods from him as a psychic and a medium. Well, we took a break um, in the middle of the training and a woman came up to me who was in the in the session named Suzanne Wilson. And she goes, "Um, you know, I'm already a medium. I'm actually here because I just moved from Florida to Arizona and I wanted to meet like-minded people. And then she gave me an affirmation that told me she was for real. It was kind of a funny statement. Um, But I could clearly tell it was from either my dad or my my uncle. Um, And by then my uncle had passed, the one I'd referenced earlier. So then she wanted, you know, she went on to say, you know what, I've met another woman who had a sun pass on a mountain. It's kind of ironic. And then she explained how this other woman's son had been uh, on a University of Arizona bus trip up to the Himalayas, and they had gone up the mountain too fast, and he ended up getting altitude sickness and dying. Well, what she didn't tell me, and I, well, I, I just said, you know, why don't you give a copy of my book to this woman? And here's my contact information. So if she wants to uh, contact me, we can connect. And the way that she had met the woman, Elizabeth Boyson, was really ironic because um, I guess Suzanne was trying to rent some space in an office space complex, but the landlord had no knowledge of what a medium was or didn't really know whether to trust her. So 
she says, well, show me some proof or something that you can do this. So Suzanne said, well, show me a picture of someone. So she pulled out a card from her desk, the landlord did, and it had a picture of three young people on it. Two were two female, one male. Well, the male on there, she started nailing and said, well, this young man, I see um, a blowhorn with him. And um, I see uh, a te- like a big teddy bear. Um, and she went on with a bunch of different things. And it was pretty mind blowing. But it turns out the blowhorn made sense because he was a cheerleader for the University of Arizona football team. And he had a blowhorn on the oh, side. Yeah. yeah. And his nickname was Big Bear because <laughs> um, the guy was huge, you know, and I guess he'd give Big Bear hugs. But there was a number of other things. So that's a little off track here. Back to Suzanne. So I give Suzanne a book. She then apparently gives it to Elizabeth. Elizabeth calls me within like a day or two and says, well, I read your whole book in one sitting and I want to meet you and your wife. So we met and we had um, a drink or something. And she said, well, I'm having, she goes, I founded an organization or a group. It's a Facebook group called Parents United and Lost. And I'm having my first in-person meeting this weekend. And I'd like you to be my first inaugural speaker. I'm like, okay, sure. So I go to that meeting and I do my thing and the meeting goes well. And then she starts having these meetings every month. The first one probably do 40 people or thereabouts. And then she would have these in an ongoing way. Fast forward to late 2011. I'm leaving a a job that I was in, a corporate job. And I was talking to Tina Powers, who I'd mentioned way earlier, a medium from Tucson, who I really respect, who's phenomenal. And she says, you know, Mark, I think your own mission in life is to help other parents who have been through the same thing you have. And I'd like you to consider maybe starting an organization. So I, I started mulling that over and I thought, well, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Elizabeth already has this thing going, but what's the shortcoming? Well, it's only one group. She doesn't have a newsletter, doesn't have a website. And what if you were to blueprint what she does and then take it out and see if you could have other affiliate groups do this? And really what made our organization different, because there were already other types of parents' organizations, but they don't allow people to talk about spiritual stuff. And when people start talking about it, they shut them down. I'm like, we're all about this. (laughs) So so I, I call Elizabeth. I say, hey. Um, would you be interested in partnering with me to start something that's basically taking what you started, but expanding it out and, you know, trying to blueprint it so other people can have it in other locations, have a newsletter. I'll put that together and then I'll build a website, you know, just a cookie cutter website to start with and then go from there. And she says, well, I love that. And I said, maybe a different name than Parents United and Lost. How about Helping Parents Seal? She goes, oh, I love that name. I hated the name Parents United and Lost because it sounded too depressing. So we started it. Some of the people that were coming to the original meetings became board members. And then it just kind of took off and grew, 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 grew. And now we're international and massive in scope. Um, And again, you know, we like at our next conference, we're going to have James Van Prague. We're going to have Mitt. Mary Neal, who um, is a doctor who had a near-death experience. We're going to have um, Gordon Smith is coming back from the UK. We've got just a ton of really high-level speakers and presenters that are going to be there. So, you know, um, that's where it is today. And when is that conference? It's It'll be August of 24. August we of 24. Once, yeah, we do it once every two years because we manage it all ourselves. 
And it's just too much to try and do every year. And we're all volunteer. There's not one person who gets paid a dime. Although I think we're reaching a critical mass where we may have to hire people to do some of the stuff because Elizabeth and our VP, uh, Irene Vuvalidis, do all the work day to day, you know, monitoring Facebook and responding to things, setting up new affiliates and all these different things and, and then planning the conference. So I don't claim that I'm doing much <laughs> of any of that. Um, I'm the chairman of the board, but that's more an oversight role, you know. Wow, it's so beautiful. I just want to say thank you on behalf of all humanity and these bereaved parents for the work that you're doing. Thank you for instigating that and, and just helping with your friends and the team to grow this. It's been such a powerful thing. Thank you for that. Well, and thanks to Elizabeth and Irene for doing all the work because they really, they make the thing happen um, on a day-to-day basis. And it's very rewarding. You talked about that in your book. If you're doing things that are helping people grow and heal and connect with something bigger than themselves, then maybe without realizing it, you're doing God's work. You're changing people's lives. That's what love wants us to do, to grow, to heal, to expand and connect. Yeah. Um, I've kind of put together what I call the five pillars of healing for these folks, you know, and um, um, the first one is, to get support from family and friends. If you can, some people get that. Some are shunned by the family actually afterward. Uh, number two is to connect with people who've been through the same thing because they can relate to you and you can talk openly about this experience. So we can help with that. The third thing is service on uh, maybe people when they're in deep grief in the initial stages, they're not going to be ready for that. But at some point, if they can find some way to provide service to others that will come back and help them too, whether that's, um, you know, working at a soup kitchen, whether that's uh, working with an existing uh, nonprofit or whether that's starting a foundation in honor of their kid, maybe raising money for uh, looking for a cure for whatever caused the death of their child. We see that kind of thing all the time, but that service comes back to help. The, f- the fourth thing is um, let letting go of feelings of guilt. A lot of parents will th- think, I should have done this or I should have done that. Or also, because um, in most cases they couldn't, you know, but they want to blame themselves or somehow rationalize things that way. In other cases, along with guilt, I'd say lack of forgiveness for someone you're holding accountable for the death of the child, um, whether it's in an accident or something else, that's just hurting you. Um, you know, we've I've got some remarkable stories of parents who have forgiven and and just you know, healed so much from letting go of that. Not that you're ever going to forget or wish it hadn't happened that way, but if you're casting all this anger and not letting go of that, that's tearing you up inside. And then the fifth pillar is really just openness to evidence for the afterlife and spiritual experiences and being able to share those. Maybe you start out by reading books uh, like mine or about near-death experiences, Raymond Moody's books or uh, Dr. Eben Alexander's book, about uh, near-death experiences or other books about other phenomena that support this. So I think for me, at least that's what I've observed of the people who have come through our um, meetings and so forth and improved from a stage where they came in the door in a state of deep despair, um, sometimes even suicidal, to where they were like healthy, functioning, joyful people. Not that they're going to be joyful every minute of every day, but their lives um, have come back to a point where they're leading a fulfilling, happy life overall. 
Wow, it just seems like almost like a new type of medicine in a way. It's 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 shamanic almost. It, it's it's really powerful because, like you said, it it does heal people, and that's the point of all of this. Hospital medicine, shamanic medicine, plant medicine. It's all about healing. And you talk about that you certify mediums. That's something I wanted to ask you about. You do have a medium certification program because again, like you said, there are people that want to take advantage of other humans and get cash or are being very vague, all of those things, but you have a certification program. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, so after my first book came out, I was getting barraged with requests for medium recommendations. And while I knew half a dozen really good ones, most of them by that point were kind of celebrity mediums. So meaning that they had long wait lists or they charged a lot because it's their only way that they made money. And that was almost like a control to like keeping their list from being too long. Some would be like two years waiting list kind of thing. So I thought, you know, there have to be more people that have this ability. They're just either unknown or lesser known. Um, and they, they wouldn't have a wait list and they probably wouldn't charge that much. So I put this together to get word out that, okay, I'm testing people who feel they have these abilities, who are, have a practice now and are doing this. And then I wanted to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. So the best of them I would put on this website that I built um, to feature them so people would know who to contact. So if somebody comes to me, I could say, okay, here's a website, go through the list, see who you like and who you feel good about. They've all been tested. They've all at least passed the minimum requirements that I've established. Um, and so the, the requirements, what they have to do is basically to pass, they have to go through five blinded readings via Zoom with no video, not knowing who they're going to read for. They're given the first name of the person at the time it starts. And then they just give a reading. It's recorded. And then at the end, it's transcribed by the sitter. The sitter has to separate the statements in it or the paragraphs into individual statements. Um, you know, for example... I believe you had a son pass. Uh, I believe his name was Aaron. I believed he liked pizza. You know, his favorite food was pizza. And then, so as the sitter's doing that, they have to grade each statement as correct, incorrect, or indeterminable. Indeterminable would be like a future prediction that hasn't happened yet, or maybe a piece of information that the sitter just can't find out the answer to, because maybe it involves somebody that was in their kid's life that they don't know or is overseas or something like that. So what we do is the indeterminable statements I set on the side, unless there's an inordinate number of those. So I limit that to 33%. You can't have more than 33% indeterminables. Anything over that I'm counting is incorrect. Um, the sitter can also award bonus points if they feel it, it's, it warrant a statement warrants that. So there's two different, there's a two point bonus and a five point bonus. So back to, you know, naming the kid like, okay, uh, did you have, I feel you had a son pass. Okay, that's correct. Um, the next statement would be like, if the medium said, I feel like it's an A name and the sitter's like, okay, the name is Aaron. So I'll give you a two point bonus for that because A is correct. But if the medium said it's Aaron, they say they got the name. I'm going to give him five point bonus for that. Wow. Then maybe they said their favorite food was pizza. Okay, it was pizza. I'm going to give them two-point bonus. But if they said it's pizza with pepperoni, olives, and black uh, olives, okay, um, th that's five-point bonus because that's exactly what his favorite food was. So you put all this together, and really it boils down to what percent accuracy is it? 
And then what's the total score with any bonus points? They have to have 75 total points to pass. They have to be at least 65% accurate, regardless of anything else to pass. So theoretically, someone could be 65% accurate, have two of the five-point bonuses, and just pass at 75. Or maybe they'd be 80 85% accurate, and then maybe they get a few bonus points on top of that. I've had people score close to 100, wow. a number of them in the 90s. But I've had people just eat by, too. And I've actually raised the standards about three times over the years because I started finding some people getting close to passing who I didn't feel were quite there. So I just kept, you know, raising the bar. And so that, that's how it's done today. I've got I've been doing this for nine and a half years, and I've got about 40 odd people on the site today. Nice. That's amazing. And some of those people, like you said, scored in the 90th percentile. Where can a medium, if you're a medium and you're listening to this, where can you get that certification? So again, I'd steer everybody to my website, markirelandauthor.com, okay. because on that site, I have links to the certified medium website. And when you get there, you'll find, on, I think it's on the about page, it tells you how, how to apply. Oh, fantastic. It also gives you a lot more details about the program in general. Um, I also have a link to um, my media, like I said, like the Discovery Channel feature. I have a link to my dad's demonstrations and i have a link to the helping parents heal website so all those links are there on that one site so i don't have to give people four or five websites <laughs> yeah there, there's a lot of websites out there well we've had a fantastic conversation mark before i tell people where to find you i want to ask you one more big question because we touched on this a little bit earlier reincarnation but really when you think about it from a mediumship perspective how does that work because if a soul continues on their journey and they're reincarnating into a different life or their next life. What part of them is residual and stays behind as the previous life to interface with the loved ones? So this is speculation. So, I mean, we're all, we're in the speculative area here, so sure. I can't, so, I'm not telling you this is a fact, but this is my best guess. Uh, here's a couple thoughts. One is, my dad, first off, when it came to reincarnation, felt like we have total choice over whether or not to reincarnate. It's a growth opportunity. It's how we refine our soul. There are not the you don't have these challenges on the other side like you have here that refine you and challenge you, you know, with pain and suffering and, and having to sacrifice and having to be kind to other people and all these things are help us grow. That's why reincarnate is my thought. Um, so if we have choice on how long we stay on the other side, maybe we don't come back as often. I mean, some people might say, oh, they reincarnate in, in a couple of years. Well, maybe some people do. It's two or three years. Maybe others is 100 years. So that could be one explanation. Another I've heard is that it's kind of the oversoul thought um, that Jung put out there. Like, okay, there's a part of you that's always on the other side. And this is just a manifestation that's a sub part of who you really are in a greater sense and that part's always on the other side um so i don't know which of those is true but those are my two best guesses so intuitively you feel like it's probably the oversoul because there's a part that's continuing on and then there's some residual energy maintaining the identity the persona the ego even of the deceased person that can be interfaced with and get information from I, I guess I'd lean that way. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm not certain. I think. Sure, sure. I, I do think conscious, there's one consciousness kind of thing. There's, I just say there's one thing that's all interconnected. So are we just subsets of the single consciousness? 
And it's just so differentiated. And we're like agents of that consciousness, um, different parts of it interconnected, or are we just individual entities that connect to that? But either way, I think there's a connectedness of everything together uh, in some way. So if I think about it that way, then maybe this oversoul, we're connected to that, but it's really part of us. Yes. It's it's not really, it's not a dualism. It's, it's singular, but we're just, you know, our body's a temporary part and we're just uh, experiencing this life and these set of experiences yet part of us that is is always there yes it's there's just so many layers it's all happening at the same time on different layers it's it's quantum like we were talking about we're expanding our consciousness our awareness as humans but we've definitely got a long way to go before we break those things down it's a complex universe. <laughs> yes, it's a very complex universe. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mark. I want to tell people where to find you. We've brought up this website a few times. Here it is. MarkIrelandAuthor.com. All one word. www.MarkMarkIreland, just like the country, and author, A-U-T-H-O-R.com. You can start there. And if you're interested in that organization that he was talking about, there is helpingparentsheal.org. And the book that we referenced during this episode, definitely check it out. It's available on Amazon and really anywhere you can get books. The Persistence of the Soul, Mediums, Spirit Visitations, and Afterlife Communication. He also has Soul Shift. And like we talked about his father's book that he put out, Your Psychic Potential a guide to psychic development by Richard Ireland with the forward by Mark Ireland. All of that is available for you to go and find, go to these websites, check out these books, people. It's absolutely amazing. And thank you again so much for being here, Mark. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we go? Ed, the, the same thing that I usually say is just, you know, people go through a lot of challenges in life and some people are in a down spot. I just say, hang in there, see it through. You're here for a reason. Your life has purpose. Um, bring as much love to the world as you can. Um, you'll get over the hump. And if, if you see it through, you'll be much happier on the back end to hang in there, go through the trials and tribulations. And I wish you all joy and happiness in this life and the next one. Yes, because it's all love, people. It's all made out of love. That was so beautiful. Thank you, Mark. I deeply appreciate you being here. Thanks, Jake. Okay, please hold through the outro music and everyone, incredible episode. Check out those books. Check out his website. There's a lot going on there. And we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.